We are at lesson three of our Elijah study now, and we're going to be reading from 1 Kings 18, 1 through 18. 1 Kings 18, verses 1 through 18. After many days, the word of the Lord came to Elijah in the third year, saying, Go show yourself to Ahab, and I will send rain upon the earth. So Elijah went to show himself to Ahab. Now the famine was severe in Samaria, and Ahab called Obadiah, who was over the household. Now Obadiah feared the Lord greatly, and when Jezebel cut off the prophets of the Lord, Obadiah took a hundred prophets and hid them by fifties in a cave and fed them with bread and water. And Ahab said to Obadiah, Go through the land to all the springs of water and to all the valleys. Perhaps we may find grass and save the horses and mules alive and not lose some of the animals. So they divided the land between them to pass through it. Ahab went in one direction by himself and Obadiah went in another direction by himself. And as Obadiah was on the way, behold, Elijah met him. And Obadiah recognized him and fell on his face and said, Is it you, my lord, Elijah? And he answered him, It is I. Go tell your lord. Behold, Elijah is here. And he said, How have I sinned that you would give your servant into the hand of Ahab to kill me? As the Lord your God lives, there is no nation or kingdom where my lord has not sent to seek you. And when they would say he is not here, he would take an oath of the kingdom or nation that they had not found you. And now you say, go tell your Lord, behold, Elijah is here. And as soon as I have gone from you, the spirit of the Lord will carry you, I know not where. And so when I come and tell Ahab, and he cannot find you, he will kill me, although I, your servant, have feared the Lord from my youth." Has it not been told, my Lord, what I did when Jezebel killed the prophets of the Lord? How I hid a hundred men in the Lord, of the Lord's prophets by fifties in a cave and fed them with bread and water. And now you say, go tell your Lord, behold, Elijah is here and he will kill me. And Elijah said, as the Lord of hosts lives before whom I stand, I will surely show myself to him today. So Obadiah went to meet Ahab and told him, and Ahab went to meet Elijah. When Ahab saw Elijah, Ahab said to him, Is it you, you troubler of Israel? And he answered, I have not troubled Israel, but you have, and your father's house, because you have abandoned the commandments of the Lord and followed the Baals. Y'all, is it just me or is it echoey? Echoey? I don't know if you can turn it down a touch. When I first wrote this lesson about six years ago, the spread of the ISIS caliphate was threatening the world. Christians in Iraq and Syria were being hunted down by Islamic militants and forced to renounce Christ or be martyred. That brought home the reality of religious terrorism that we find in our text. 
Christians are still being persecuted and martyred in many places in the world today. But praise God, the caliphate is gone. I'm wearing a bracelet today, two of them, but one of them says, I am N. And it has the Arabic letter N. And um, it's a reminder of the persecuted church. When the Islamic State militants identified Christian-owned buildings for takeover by marking them with this Arabic letter N, they were accusing the owners of being Nazarenes or Christians. Um, Rather than deny Jesus or compromise their faith, many believers sacrificed everything except the clothes on their back, and some of them sacrificed their lives. And so this is a reminder to me to pray for the persecuted church. But the persecuted church isn't um, as far away as it used to be. Today we see a new kind of religious zealotry in our own nation going on. The threat is closer to home. Originally, as you know, it disguised itself as a civil rights movement, but it unleashed violence and lawlessness into our streets to intimidate, and to seize power. It's taken most of us a while to figure out what's going on, and we're not still entirely sure. But this we have figured out. It's not really about race, although they're brilliantly exploiting racial tension to get what they want. It is about economics, but that is not the heart of it. It is violently anti-establishment, and at the heart, ferociously anti-God. Churches are being targeted with prejudicial, heavy-handed government restrictions, as well as with actual physical violence by terrorists in our nation. Back when I taught this, we were looking at pictures of churches being blown up in other countries. It's happening here. Not here, here in Augusta, Georgia, but in the more radical places that are being looted and burned and targeted. Church buildings are being burned, religious icons and statues are being desecrated, church services have been disrupted, and churchgoers are being aggressively harassed and even physically attacked. These people want to destroy the foundation of Judeo-Christian culture and history and replace it with the exact opposite. There are very dark spiritual forces behind what's going on, and we know that anywhere this happens. The devil's behind it. (laughs) But in a very tangible way, we're beginning to see that. We have talked glibly for years about spiritual warfare to the point that it's almost become an imaginary concept out there, fictitious. We're seeing it in real life, real time, color, high definition, flesh and blood acted out right now, the war between God and Satan. Communism is neither a trend or thought, nor a doctrine or a failed attempt at a new way of ordering human affairs, I'm quoting. Instead, it should be understood as a devil, an evil specter, forged by hate and degeneracy and other elemental forces in the universe. And that quote is taken from how the spirit of communism is ruling our world. Now, a few years ago, I would have thought that was a little extreme to say something like that. I'm not thinking it's so extreme anymore. You see, 
Everywhere that communism or Marxism goes, Christians are deliberately targeted and killed. There's never been a place where communism has taken over that the church has not been persecuted horrifically. And not just the church. I mean, they target all kinds of things. But the church is intentionally targeted. That's kind of the the real point of it. Because the church stands for the authority of God. And the truth of his word. The church and God are what stand between the world and Marxists being able to do whatever they want. If we subscribe to a higher authority, um, then they can't do whatever they want. And Christians will die rather than say, Caesar is God. This, um, in case you didn't know, um, Karl Marx was very into the occult. Adolf Hitler was very into the occult. So behind some of these things that we look at as just economic or governmental structures, there's more behind it. There's actually satanic fueling of this. So this is very close to the situation in Israel in the days of Elijah. The idolatry of a foreign religion had infiltrated and overtaken the nation. And those who were loyal to the Lord God of Israel were being persecuted. A hundred of the Lord's prophets were hidden away, but the implication is the rest of them were killed by Jezebel and her thugs. When Elijah declared that it would not rain except for at his word, he directly challenged the power of Baal. Baal was kind of the head god of the Canaanite religions that Queen Jezebel had brought in from Sidon. It had already been working its way in because God's people tend to start adopting things from the culture around them. But Jezebel brought it in officially and began to persecute the true religion. When Elijah said it would not rain, he was directly challenging Baal, because Baal was the one who was supposed to bring rain. He was considered the storm god. And so Elijah is daring Ahab to see if Baal could provide what the Lord God of Israel withheld. Look at the prevailing conditions at the time the story takes place. After many days, the word of the Lord came to Elijah in the third year, the third year of the drought, saying, go show yourself to Ahab and I will send rain on the earth. So we see it's been a long time since this started. It seems that it has also been a long time since Elijah has heard from the Lord. We read stories in the Bible about God talking to people And we assume, oh, he did this all the time. You know, these people, they just heard from God all the time. Well, it was decades sometimes between um, when Abraham heard from the Lord the promise. You know, a long time went on before he heard again. And he began to question, is this really, uh, did I get this wrong? Uh, Maybe I'm supposed to do something. And so he gets into the whole Ishmael fiasco. And I think... um, we have a hard time that when initially when we're very convicted or we see something in the word of God that we believe is true and we know it's for us, and then we don't hear anything for a long time. We begin to doubt and question, and it's easy to kind of lose our focus and lose our way. But here we see Elijah waiting on the Lord during this time. And we need faith to wait on the Lord. Our faith is securely based upon the character of God. Scripture assures us God is not a man that he should lie 
or the Son of Man, that he should change his mind. Has he said and will he not do it? Or has he spoken and will he not fulfill it? Rhetorical question. Obviously, no. He's going to do what he says. Habakkuk wrote, For still the vision awaits its appointed time. It hastens to the end. It will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come. It will not delay. So what God has said, he will do. Even when it looks like nothing is happening, we can wait with full confidence in the promise of God. He has a whole history to prove. He has never broken his word. We tend to measure our lives spiritually from mountaintop to mountaintop. (laughs) But there's a lot of time spent trudging through the valley and laboriously climbing up that next mountain. A lot has to happen before we get to that spectacular view at the top of the next mountain. In our story today, it has been three and a half years since the Lord closed up the sky. And when he told Elijah to do this, he didn't say at the outset how long it was going to be. Elijah pronounced the word of the Lord, and then he waited for the next word from the Lord. And I wonder what he was thinking during that time. God is going to get back to me, right? <laughs> I, mean, I, I, I got it right. Uh, I don't know what he was thinking, but that's what I'd be thinking. I'd be starting to go, ooh, how long is this going to go on? We can learn several things about waiting for the Lord from this period of Elijah's life. First, while we are waiting for God, we need to remain faithful. See, waiting for the Lord does not mean that we do nothing. We don't need a new word from the Lord every single day. He tells us what we need to know, when we need to know it. We have his counsel in the scripture. We have what we need for life and godliness. We don't need a supernatural new revelation every single day to know whether we should get up and go to work or stay home. There's a lot of living that just goes on. In the meantime, God expects us to be faithful to the last instruction he gave us. Second, while we're waiting for God, we should keep our eyes on the Lord, waiting for his next direction. So while we're waiting on the Lord, we must guard against tuning out. And I have a tendency to do that. You know, I think, I, okay, I got it, you know, and then autopilot, I settle down and I kind of forget what I'm about. Um, waiting on the Lord means keeping your eyes on the Lord and waiting for his next command. We must keep our focus on the Lord so that we're ready to move when he says move and act when he directs us to. Remember the children of Israel in the wilderness? and they had the pillar of cloud and the pillar of fire. And every time the cloud lifted, they were to go with it. And every time it settled, they settled down. So they had to be constantly looking (laughs) to the Lord. Are, Are we supposed to move? Are we supposed to settle? What are we supposed to do? See, we will never reach a place in this life when we don't need to keep our eyes on the Lord and follow where he leads us. And acting at the proper time requires discernment. Um, it's pretty nice. Elijah had a word from the Lord. I don't know what that's like to be a prophet. I don't know if he heard a voice or whatever, how the Lord revealed himself to prophets, visions, dreams, whatever. Um, it would be nice to have something that concrete, 
and usually we don't, but we have the counsel of the scripture. So initially God told Elijah to hide himself from Ahab, and now he tells Elijah to present himself to Ahab. I see in this that one course of action is not always appropriate in every situation. Too often, we want to reduce our spiritual life to a formula. We just want to have a quick answer, a little cheat sheet, and in every situation, this is what we're supposed to do. Well, maturing in the Christian life requires wisdom, and wisdom is to know what to do when it's appropriate to do it. You look at Proverbs, and you might have two conflicting Proverbs that looks like Answer a fool according to his folly and he'll, you know, he'll do no good. Don't answer him and he's going to think he's, you know, all that. So which one do you do? Well, wisdom comes in to know in that situation which proverb do you put to use. So one course of action, there's not a cookie cutter, one size fits all, all Christians are supposed to do this in a situation of persecution. King Solomon wrote in Ecclesiastes 3, 1 and 7, for everything there is a season and a time for every purpose under heaven. So we can't say a Christian is never supposed to um, hate somebody. <laughs> There's a time for love and a time for hate. A Christian is never supposed to go to war. There's a time for war and a time for peace. There's a time for every purpose under heaven. Think about Jesus in his ministry, he eluded capture until it was time to go to the cross. When his time had come, he then presented himself for the cross. So, Christians in the persecuted church, you're not always going to see them acting in the same way. And if persecution comes to us, maybe we're not all going to be called to act out the same way in that situation. We all are called to be faithful to the Lord. Some are called to take a real upfront stand, um, become a very visible martyr. Others are working quietly around the edges, helping. We, you know, we don't know. The Lord will direct. We have certain principles, but you can't say, and every Christian has to do it this way. The next thing we see about the conditions at this time in Elijah's story is that the famine was severe by this point. We see nature is now working against them. Israel had been very profitable up to this time when Elijah came and confronted Ahab. They were prosperous. They had good trade relations with the neighbors near them. Ahab had made political alliances. They weren't at war. They were doing fine. But now we have, because of the curse of God, nature begins to work against them. And so they have this drought, prolonged drought. We saw when God sent Ahab to the widow in Zarephath how the first people that are impacted by this are the really poor people of society who live hand to mouth. There's no reserve. And so at the beginning of this, you have the poor people suffering. Somebody like King Ahab would not necessarily care too much about that. But times are really tough now. This is not just poor people dying on the fringes of society. The famine is being felt now in all levels of society. Now King Ahab is personally feeling the pinch. 
he is personally being inconvenienced by the drought. The palace is on the verge of having to kill its animals because they can't feed them anymore. Ahab and Obadiah, his palace administrator, are out searching the land for grass to feed the horses and mules so that they won't starve to death. Think about this. Horses, we're talking in this time about the cavalry, military strength of Israel's army. This drought and the ensuing famine are now compromising national security. Imagine having to kill off the horses of the cavalry back in, you know, Civil War times, say. Imagine having to kill off the horses because you can't feed them anymore. Or today, maybe think of having to disable and abandon tanks and the tank corps because you can't pay, there's, there's no fuel for them, so they're no good to you. Compromises national security. So that's the horses and the mules that are mentioned here. We're talking about the commercial infrastructure of the nation. If the mules die, transportation and trade will be severely compromised. Imagine all the railroads falling into disrepair and trucking being entirely disabled because there's no gasoline to put in the tanks. So how are we going to get our bread to the grocery store. All these things are beginning to break down in the nation at this point. We can hold out against the judgment of God for a while, but when it really starts impacting us personally, we've got to stand up or wake up and take notice. And Ahab is just about at that point. So these are the prevailing conditions in the nation of Israel as God sends Elijah to begin the next act of the unfolding drama. I want to look at two important characters in this passage who held very important positions of influence in the government. They are conflicting characters. Um, Besides the central characters of the prophet Elijah and King Ahab, who we already know are in conflict, um, Elijah is speaking for God. He's confronting the king of Israel and their butting heads. But besides these central characters, we have two other characters in conflict. We have Queen Jezebel and Obadiah. Both God and Satan have their agents at work in the government. First, let's look at Jezebel. Jezebel was King Ahab's wife. She was the queen. She had been killing off the prophets of the Lord. Um, Hers is not an official office. This isn't like the Queen of England in the old days, Queen Victoria or somebody that actually had power. She's the wife of the king. But she has a lot of influence It would um, be something like this. Say the president's wife ordered the Secret Service to harass and kill all the Christian pastors in America, and they actually do it. Or imagine the IRS uh, being told by the president's wife to target all the political organizations and 
churches and charities that they don't agree with politically. Harass them, telling the IRS to do it, and they do it. Jezebel exercised inappropriate power in the kingdom. And remember, she was not even an Israelite. She's a Sidonian princess. She comes in, and she has this kind of life-and-death power over the citizens of Israel. She is using her husband's authority to do whatever she wanted to have done. And he knew about it, and he didn't object. He let her do as she pleased, because usually she was getting him what he wanted. I remember one of my first jobs. Um, The boss's wife would come in periodically, and she kind of had a sort of a part-time job there, and we'd all be kind of incensed that we're there at 7.30, and she'd come in around 10 and, you know, leave early, and she could do that. You know, who are we to be saying what the boss's wife had to do? But we had this little attitude, and one of the other employees said, if you sleep with the boss, you can come and go as you please. (laughs) Well, that's what Jezebel was doing. (laughs) She did not have an official position in the government, but she had incredible influence, and she was using her husband's authority to do what she pleased. Jezebel was a religious zealot. She was promoting conversion or extermination not unlike the terror threat of the Islamic State that we were looking at six years ago, bent on conquering the world and converting it by force. Look at the BLM movement today. Bow and give lip service or be targeted and harassed. Jezebel was a brutal tyrant with no fear of the Lord and no respect for human life. They do go together, you know, fear of the Lord and respect for human life. If you don't fear the Lord, then there's nothing really sacred about human life. So she doesn't mind wiping out a bunch of people, sacrificing children, doing whatever, as the queen, making this the order of the day. But now let's look at Obadiah. Obadiah was the manager of the king's household. He's in charge of the king's household. It was a very important position of royal administration. He had been using his position of influence, and he did have an official position, to protect the Lord's prophets from Jezebel. Obadiah was a brave believer. He feared the Lord greatly, we're told. This means that Obadiah was a man of conscience, He feared the Lord more than he feared the king and queen. This is not a cringing terror um, when we talk about the fear of the Lord. It's not a cringing terror. This is a solemn respect. This is saying the Lord is more real to me, more important to me, um, more powerful. He's the God I worship, and so my loyalty to him comes first, and that informs my conscience. So because he feared the Lord, he did not unquestioningly obey the orders of the king. Because he feared the Lord, he secretly acted in opposition to the queen's command. He saved the lives of 100 of the Lord's prophets, hiding them from Jezebel against the law and supporting them with food and water. But we also see in our text that Obadiah was not naturally a brave person. 
He was a frightened human being. I can relate to that. He was afraid of the king, and he was afraid of death. If Obadiah admits to having seen Elijah, and Elijah doesn't show up for the meeting that he's arranging with the king, he's afraid that Ahab will kill him for letting Elijah go. Ahab is afraid. Um, not Ahab. He's afraid of Ahab. Um, Elijah assures Obadiah that he will indeed present himself to the king that very day. See, Elijah cares for Obadiah's life. And he's not going to make Obadiah a martyr for him. So Elijah reassures Obadiah by taking an oath in the name of the Lord. As the Lord of hosts lives before whom I stand, I will surely show myself to him today. The promise of the Lord's prophet made in the name of the Lord reassures Obadiah. And so he goes and gets Ahab. God cannot lie. And his prophet, speaking officially in his name, cannot lie. And Obadiah greatly feared the Lord, so he respected the Lord's prophets. Jezebel was a stronger personality than Obadiah. But Obadiah served the living God. God uses ordinary people in extraordinary situations. Think about the term the greatest generation. We hear that a lot on the news or we talk about it in culture. The greatest generation and we try to measure our culture up to them and we're like, no way. You know, they sacrificed. They were patriotic. They were willing to do things. They were a great generation and ours kind of pitiful. But here's the thing. Was the greatest generation inherently greater than other generations? They rose to the occasion and became great. Obadiah was not inherently brave, but he was strengthened by the promise of God, and he obeyed. I can relate to the fear, that struggle between faith and fear. Um, One of the biographies I read was of Dietrich Bonhoeffer, and of course he is, at the time of World War II, resisting the Nazis in Germany. Um, He was a Lutheran minister, and he was part of the underground church that was resisting Nazis. And I remember reading this line about him that before he was taken, by the time he finally decided, he he was kind of a pacifist to begin with, but over the course of his development, he came to believe that the most righteous thing he could do was to be part of a plot to assassinate Hitler because he saw that there are victims of this evil that must be protected. But he was trying to evaluate himself, and he was afraid that if he were captured and put in prison that he wouldn't have the courage to endure torture, as a lot of them were subjected to. So he was really nervous about that, and he was put in prison, and he was martyred for the Lord. But just that thought beforehand, a lot of my life I've struggled with that, as I've shared with you before about the end of the world. I was sure I would not live till 30. I am living in overtime right now. (laughs) But my whole growing up time, I was thinking, if I'm called to die for the Lord, am I going to be able to do it? So I try to toughen myself up mentally. And um, at one point, I practiced standing on one foot for a really long time in the corner. I was a really little kid because I had asked my mom, how, what kind of bad things would they do to you if, if they took us away from you? <laughs> we were really into apocalyptic things. 
Um, what might they do? Well, she didn't want to terrify me with details of how people are tortured. So she said, oh, they could do anything. You know, like make you stand on one foot in the corner for an hour. <laughs> so I decided to stand on one foot in the corner for as long as I could to toughen up my legs in case I had to do that. <laughs> but just the struggle with would I be able to, to stand up and take what was needed. And um, that's not how you prepare. Why was I going? Where I lost my place. Okay. Um, Obadiah was a frightened human being. And he rose to the occasion because of his faith. We see in this story that Obadiah's position in the King Ahab's government was a providential assignment. God had put him there for a reason. First of all, he's employed by a wicked government, a wicked king. And this brings up the question of Christians being involved in government, secular government, or ungodly government. Granted, um, political involvement takes different forms in different cultures. Obadiah did not run for public office. He was appointed by the king. But scripture provides numerous examples of godly men and women who worked for ungodly masters and heathen kings. And they were good at it. And God providentially placed them there. In those positions of authority and influence, they served God and were used to assist God's people. How a person uses a position of power says a lot about that person, doesn't it? Some principles that should guide us are integrity in office, honesty, being worthy of the king's trust or the public trust. As Christians in that position, because of our faith in God, we are called to be excellent administrators, to live up to the public trust, to be above reproach. John the Baptist gave some explicit guidance to tax collectors and soldiers who worked for Rome when he was calling people to repentance to prepare the way for the Lord. Um, Soldiers came to him and tax collectors came to him and said, what should we do to be righteous given our professions? You might expect that John the Baptist would have said, quit your professions. It's a sinful place to be. Get out. That's not what he said. He told the tax collectors, collect no more than you were authorized to do. And to the soldiers, he said, do not extort money from anyone by threats or by false accusation and be content with your wages. In other words, do what is just and fair in the profession where you are. Don't misuse your position of authority to take advantage of other people. Obadiah was obviously a man of integrity in whom the king had full confidence. Think of another man in scripture, Nehemiah, who was cupbearer to the king of Persia. Um, He used his position to advocate for his people, the exiles who had returned to Jerusalem, to advocate to the king that the wall needed to be rebuilt. He was in a unique position to have access to the king, and the king trusted totally in him and had developed a relationship with him to the point that when he saw Nehemiah was sad about his people being in this desperate situation, his heart was moved when Nehemiah told him why. And he gave Nehemiah what he needed and sent him out with protection and supplies to rebuild the wall. I heard that Saddam Hussein 
only employed Christians as his personal physicians because they were the only people he could trust not to murder him. (laughs) Christians should have that reputation of integrity. The second principle is really the basis of the first. The word to have integrity, the fear of God. And that's a matter of our ultimate allegiance. We see this quality clearly uh, present in Obadiah. We're told that Obadiah feared the Lord greatly, and that is why he rescued the prophets. Daniel is another classic example of a righteous man who served an ungodly government. And he was so good at his job that the king planned to promote him over all the other government people. And the other rulers were jealous of Daniel, and they tried to discredit him, but they could find no fault in him. They're having private detectives follow him, and they're checking up on him. Surely, you know, you watch anybody closely enough, you're going to find something. They couldn't find anything where he had wronged the king or misused his power or been lax or negligent or they couldn't find a thing. He was diligent, he was faithful, he was competent, and his devotion to God made him incorruptible. The only way they could manufacture a scenario to discredit Daniel was to bring his religious convictions, which made him such an excellent employee, into conflict, direct conflict, with the worship of his God. His, um, that The worship of his God, bringing that into direct conflict with the king's command. So they tricked the king into ordering this command that nobody's allowed to pray to anybody but the king for a certain amount of time. Daniel kept on praying, just like he always had. He didn't hide in his closet. He prayed right where he used to, right in front of his open window, as if the king hadn't said a thing. So he ended up in the lion's den. Daniel never compromised his ultimate loyalty and devotion to God, even under threat of death. How we need men and women in authority in our nation with integrity like this. Why do our elected officials not act to defend the public interest? Why do some of the people that we have elected, we assume we put them there on this platform, and then when push comes to shove, they're not there They're not standing up, they're not taking leadership, or they're voting totally the opposite of what they had said they stood for. Why is that? Well, they're either compromised or bribed or blackmailed. They're owned. Somehow, somebody got a hold on them, either through greed or through fear or changed their minds so that they're complicit Daniel was a man of integrity, and his devotion to God was such that he was utterly incorruptible. In God's providence, Obadiah was assigned to a high position in a wicked government so that he would be capable of helping the people of God. So far, in the life of Elijah, we have seen God's providence for his people through ravens delivering meal, through a widow that he had commanded to supply him, and now through a government official. God placed Obadiah in this position of authority so that he could save those hundred prophets when Jezebel had ordered their extinction. Think about Joseph in the Old Testament. He understood that his position of authority in Egypt was given to him by God so that he could save lives and preserve God's covenant people through famine. 
Think of Esther. Mordecai, her relative, understood that Esther had come to her royal position for such a time as this, for just this reason, to save her people from Holocaust. You know, people end up in all kinds of situations. You know, here she is, this young girl that won this beauty contest, and um, a devout Jew. She's married to a Gentile, an ungodly man, an unbeliever. God providentially put her there. It was beyond her control. But he put her there, and in that position, he used her in a mighty way. (laughs) We don't all have cookie-cutter lives. (laughs) But wherever you are, you're to work with all your strength for the glory of God. God's servants are strategically placed everywhere to assist his people. God has servants in the animal kingdom, the ravens. He commands them. Think about Jesus in the New Testament when Peter's freaking out because he doesn't have money to pay his taxes. And Jesus says, go down, catch the first fish you find, open its mouth, and you'll have a coin. And he did. It'll be enough to pay both of our taxes. Go do it. And he did. God commands fish. He commands birds. He has servants everywhere. He has servants in foreign nations. This widow of Zarephath that he used to feed Elijah. And even in secular government organizations, God has his people. So don't despair. Yeah, things are bad. This isn't the first time God's people have been through desperate times where things were really bad and the government was really corrupt and um, God's people were outright persecuted. We have a long history to draw on. God has his people in our government too. Every position of authority God gives us is at his service. It's almost like we work for a temporary agency. God is the one we really work for, and he'll send us to work in a particular area. In these positions of influence or authority, we must never lose sight of who we are ultimately serving. Devotion to God should make us better employees, diligent, fair, faithful, because we serve a higher power and hold to a higher standard. Pleasing the boss must never come at the expense of pleasing God. So we've looked at the prevailing conditions and the positions of influence. Now let's look at the final portion of our text. And here we find Ahab pointing the finger. When he saw Elijah, Ahab said to him, Is it you, you troubler of Israel? See, Ahab accuses Elijah of causing trouble for Israel. Elijah could be perceived as a troublemaker because he was challenging the nation's idolatry. For the most part, the people were happy serving Baal. Things were going well for the nation. The economy had been prospering. Foreign relations were stable. Baal seemed to be working out okay. We don't like it when someone tells us that what we enjoy or what we think is good for us is actually not good for us and we need to stop. That makes us mad. Um, And it was obviously making the king mad. Second, Elijah could be seen as causing trouble because he's delivering God's message, which was one of conviction. Elijah confronts the king. He reminds the king and the nation that they are accountable 
to God's authority. The king does not have absolute authority. He answers to God, and here's your wake-up call. That's never a popular message with those in rebellion or with tyrannical kings. Like I said in the beginning, why are Marxism and Christianity so opposed? (laughs) Christianity and ultimate loyalty to God stands between them and domination of the world. If you have people that stand up and say, no, I'm loyal to God and I'm not going to do what you say, well, as a tyrant, that's dangerous. You don't want those people in your kingdom stirring up trouble. So Elijah delivers God's message. And third, Ahab thinks Elijah has caused trouble because he's the one imposing the drought. He's issued the sentence at God's command by his prayers. He's God's agent, but the order is from God. But Ahab has searched everywhere for Elijah, even the surrounding nations, but he's totally overlooking the obvious in this. Elijah can't act independently of God. Elijah's power is dependent on God's authority, and Elijah can only give the message that God told him to give. Think about um, Balaam and Balak in the Old Testament. When Balak, the king of this foreign nation, brings in the prophet Balaam, what a pitiful prophet this guy is, um, brings him in and says, curse this people for me. So he goes to the Lord, and the Lord says, you're not cursing those people. I've blessed those people. You can't curse them. Well, the king keeps dragging them around to different positions and saying, well, maybe you could curse just this part of them, or maybe if you see them from this way, you could do it. And even pitiful prophet that Balaam is, he says, I can't. I can't do anything unless the Lord tells me to do it. He's told me not to do it. I can't. Well, he was a corrupt prophet, and he found a way around that eventually, but that's a different story. Elijah's power is from God. His authority is from God. He has ordered, he's spoken the command of God, but it's not about him. So perhaps Ahab wanted to force Elijah to rescind the curse. Or maybe he thought he could kill Elijah and Baal would restore favor and send rain. Ahab thinks that if he can just get rid of Elijah, he will be rid of the trouble. See, it's human psychology to want to kill the messenger, right? We can't see God. We can't really get at him. But his prophet we can see. And we can give his prophet a hard time. So remember the story of Balaam's donkey and the story I was just alluding to. As he's getting on his donkey, trotting off to go give this curse for the king, his donkey keeps swerving off the road. And it won't go where Balaam wants it to go. And Balaam obviously has anger issues because he just throws a royal hissy fit. He just starts in a rage flying into that donkey. Finally, the donkey just sat down and wouldn't go. And he just gets out and he's kicking it and beating it and screaming at it. And God opens the donkey's mouth. Remember, and he says, "Um, have I ever acted this way before? And then he looks up and he sees this angel with a drawn sword in the way where he's trying to make the donkey go. And the angel would have killed him. And the angel said, I have more respect for your donkey than I have for you. If you had gotten that donkey to go, I would have killed you. (laughs) So, the one who stands against us, who issues rebuke from the Lord, may just be our very best friend 
that person may be standing between us and destruction. Such was the case with Elijah and the trouble he was causing in Israel in his stubborn pursuit of his own way. See, the prophet, when he comes and he issues this convicting message, inherent in that is the call to repent. This is your warning. Things could get a lot worse. So stop, turn back, change your mind, head back in the right direction. But (laughs) Ahab blames Elijah. But Elijah redirects the blame right back to Ahab. He says, I have not troubled Israel, but you have and your father's house because you have abandoned the commandments of the Lord and followed the Baals. As leader of the nation, Ahab had broken the covenant that God made with Israel and incurred the curses stipulated in the law of Moses. He's abandoned the Lord. Now Moses had warned Israel of what would happen if they abandoned the Lord to follow other gods. He said that the whole land would become burned out with brimstone and salt, nothing sown, nothing growing, where no plants can sprout. The drought is a little foretaste of what's going to happen if you keep going on down that road. Moses warned, all the nations will say, why has the Lord cursed this land? What caused the heat of his great anger? And then the people will say, it is because they abandoned the covenant of the Lord, the God of their fathers, which he made with them when he brought them out of the land of Egypt. And they went and served other gods and worshiped them, gods whom they had not known and whom he had not allocated to them. Therefore, the anger of the Lord was kindled against this land, bringing upon it all the curses written in this book. Ahab has followed the Baals. He's abandoned the God of his fathers. And this is spiritual adultery. Idolatry is spiritual adultery. Moses had commanded, you shall not go after other gods, the gods of the people who are around you. And that's exactly what Ahab has done. He said, for the Lord your God in your midst is a jealous God, lest the anger of the Lord your God be kindled against you and he destroy you from off the face of the earth. Scripture is God's love story in a lot of ways. Um, You look in the Old Testament, it's God's relationship with his people Israel, calling them back like an unfaithful wife. And in the New Testament, it's the love story of Christ and the church. So spiritual adultery is when we turn from the Lord, the great lover, husband, um, redeemer, and we go after a lesser God. Here's the conclusion of the matter. Sin has consequences. We might want to be our own little gods, deciding what's right and wrong for us, but in in God's providence and the way the universe is made up, reality gets in the way. We can throw a fit like Ahab or like Balaam. We can attack and punish the people who bring us the message of God, who tell us to repent, who convict us. But in the end, we have to deal with God. It is not the one who rebukes, but the one who sins who has caused the trouble. God is not unreasonable or unjust. God's judgment is not without cause or without warning. 
I've been kind of following situation <laughs> in um, well the church at large, different denominations, what's going on. I think that's fascinating. Back a year or so ago when the big um, crisis in the Catholic Church was going on with um, priest predators and all of a sudden this was coming out, um, whistleblowers were sometimes accused of being divisive, causing scandal, keep it hidden. Or the ones who are speaking out against some of the things that the Pope is doing, faithful Catholics who are resisting that, they're being reprimanded by their bishops, told not to be divisive. You're causing scandal in the church. You're doing the devil's work, they're being told. Really? The prophet is sent to warn to tell you you're on the wrong path. Danger, stop right now. Turn around, repent. He's not the one causing the problem. (laughs) Believing that we should be able to follow after other gods and still receive the blessing of the Lord is unreasonable. The Lord is the source of all blessing. Think about this. A child who is constantly rebelling against their parents And yet they expect food and clothing and shelter and a new car and no curfew. Is that reasonable? How about a wife who sleeps with other men, but she still expects her husband to provide her with a house and food and health insurance and a car and buy her clothes and jewelry? Is that reasonable? No. Is the attorney who serves her divorce papers or the husband who stops paying the cause of her trouble? No. She's brought the trouble on herself. Ahab had brought the trouble on himself. The apostate nation had brought trouble on itself. And here's the prophet of God saying, whoa, stop, you're doing the wrong thing. This is not going in a good direction. And the people and the king get mad at the prophet and say, you're causing us trouble. When we abandon the Lord... We abandon the source of all our blessings. And when we pursue idols, we incur his holy jealousy. As we think about enduring religious persecution that may or may not come to us, we don't know, but the church has been persecuted from its inception. As we think about that, serving the Lord in dangerous times, like Obadiah, this is the thing you need to remember from today. It is the Lord's strength and faithfulness, not ours, that will empower us to go through dark times. So I'm going to play a song for you, as I do. And why, you know, why do I play songs at the end of every lesson? Why do I do this? Because God's love and his mercy is worth singing about. His people have always sung. It has always been part of Jewish and Christian worship to sing the praises of God. Um, We have the Psalms and old hymns, a rich wealth of the history of the people of God attesting to the truth. Um, And then we have the commanded scripture, sing a new song to the Lord. He's always worth writing new love songs for. Um, And one of the marks of revival everywhere it takes place is new worship springs up, new songs. So... I think music has, songs, hymns, spiritual songs, worship music has the power to not only remind us of the truth that we know, but apply it to our hearts. (laughs) 
bring our hearts into alignment with what our head believes, and it prepares us. We build upon this. We remember it. In the times of trial, these are the things that will come to mind. I just finished a um, biography of... Um, who's that guy? You just loaned me the book. Andrew Brunson, who was um, taken captive uh, recently, just, just recently released. President Trump had organized to get him released. He was in um, Iran and as a missionary and got taken away unjustly. And his is a story not of triumphant, God was with me, it was easy. It was, it was a witness of, I was really weak. I was having mental breakdowns. I was crying out to the Lord. I did not feel his presence. Um, but God did amazing things in that situation. But one of the things he did to keep his sanity was sing all the songs and hymns that he remembered. And so that's why I'm giving you these songs. Um, so I want us to listen to, you can take out the words that I gave you, His Love Can Never Fail. And this is by, well, it's an old hymn, an old historic hymn of the church, put to new music by Indelible Grace. Well, let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you that your love can never fail. And that we don't need to be afraid, no matter what comes. We can rejoice in the Lord, even when we look out at the horizon and we see nothing good coming. And we're in the middle of a drought, and the cattle are dying, and there's no fruit on the vine. We can still rejoice in God, because you're our Savior. And you have promised you will never leave us or forsake us. You have promised to work all things for the good of those who love you and are called according to your purposes. We delight in belonging to you. We ask that you would grow our faith. Help us to live out of the confidence that we can stand firmly on in your promises, in your word. Take these truths and make them part of us, that we can be joyful, powerful witnesses for you even though we are weak and frail people and often afraid. But you have told us we don't need to be afraid. And you have told us not to worry about that hour when we will be called to stand and give witness to you because your Holy Spirit in that hour will give us what to say. So we trust you, Lord, and we long to trust you more. And we look forward to the day when you will return and make all things new. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.